Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Well, hey, TCC. For those of you who might be new, my name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 3. We're going to be using that section as a framework for our discussion today as we continue with our five-week sermon series on the five solas, which are five essential principles or pillars of Reformed theology or evangelicalism that comes out of the Reformation. And those five pillars are Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, and glory to God alone. Only we say it in Latin because we want to be fancy. Uh, We could just say the five alones, which sounds like a pretty good band name, the five alones. But the five alones are what encapsulate what was meant to be a theological correction. Uh, Tomorrow is actually Reformation Day. It's the day in which Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the All Saints Church, which is regarded as the onset for the Reformation, which was a movement to do just that, to reform the church, to better the church, to improve the church. Because in the 16th century, it was a rather dark time in the history of the church. Very few people could read the Bible. Even if you could read in general, the Bible was not available in your native language. And so very few people actually knew what the Word of God said. And so from that, you get theological confusion and theological drift and opportunity for exploitation, which is what was happening. Infamously, you had what were called indulgences, which at that time basically went like this. If you give money to the church, your deceased family member will get out of purgatory. But that is a concept, that is an idea that appears nowhere in Scripture. It appears nowhere in the Bible. And thanks to the Reformers, we have the Bible in our native language, and you can read it and see for yourself. And so what the Reformers were arguing is, if you're presenting, if you're putting forth a theological concept or an idea that is not found in Scripture, then it is not authoritative. The Bible, as all of Christendom agrees, is God's word, and as such, it has unique authority because it is uniquely God's revelation to us. Last week, we looked at that first sola, which was sola scriptura, which is the idea that scripture alone has theological authority. It is God's word to us. It is God revealing himself to us, and the Bible is sufficient. It gives us everything that we need to know for salvation and righteousness. Now, if we believe that about the Bible, that the Bible is the word of God, then a central question in Christianity is going to be, what does the Bible say about Christ Jesus? And what we see in Scripture is solus Christus, Christ alone which is what we'll be looking at today. So listen carefully, pay attention to what the scriptures declare about Jesus of Nazareth, what his followers, what the witnesses of him proclaim about him. And hear these words from Acts, starting in chapter 3. This is a lengthy section, but I think it's very worthwhile. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Walk. 
Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You know, I was really quite tempted to just end the sermon there, because having read that, what else needs to be said? 
especially when we've been talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. You know, ending right here would really make that point. The Scriptures proclaim Christ alone. John and Peter have made it clear salvation is found in no one else. That is what we mean when we say Christ alone. Salvation is a work of Christ and Christ alone. Scripture declares that salvation is found in no one else. The disciples of Jesus, the witnesses of Jesus, proclaim that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. And Jesus himself says of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All scripture points us to Jesus. That's what the Bible says about him. That's what his disciples say about him, right? Verse 18. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Verse 22. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. It's all pointing to him. That's what scripture says about Jesus. That's what the disciples say about Jesus. That's what Jesus says about himself. Luke chapter 24. He, that's Jesus, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. John chapter 5, Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is the source of eternal life. And if you've missed that, then you have missed the entirety of Scripture. Now, why? Why do the law and prophets and Psalms point to Jesus? What's so special about him? Well, it's because he is the God-man. He is God incarnate. God come to earth in the flesh. Verse 14 of our text. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. That is no mere man. Who is the author of life but God alone? That's what the scriptures declare about Jesus. That's what his disciples say about him. And that's what Jesus declares about himself. John chapter 8, Jesus says this to the religious leaders. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why are they looking to stone him? Because he just claimed to be God. He invoked the name that God the Father gave himself, Yahweh, I am. And Jesus equates himself with God. He says this, John chapter 14. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is God, and that's why he alone can save. Because he's the holy and righteous one, and he is the author of life. And how does he save us? Well, our passage tells us that too. It's by his life, death, and resurrection. Verse 10. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. 
Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is by Jesus' death on the cross that we can have salvation. The scriptures declare that over and over again. Ephesians, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. 1 Peter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Titus, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. We are saved by Jesus' work on the cross. By his death we have new life, and by his wounds we are healed. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. That's what his followers said about Jesus. And that's what Jesus said about himself. Today in our service, we're celebrating communion. That is a sacrament that Jesus institutes right before he goes to his death on a cross. And he says, the bread is my body broken for you. And the cup, he says, is my blood shed for you. And he proclaims this. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is Christ's death on the cross that brings us forgiveness and salvation, his blood that covers us and washes us clean when we put our faith in him. Again, our text, verse 19, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And Romans says this, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. That's what his followers say about Jesus. That's what Jesus says about himself. John chapter 5. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. All of scripture points to him, for he alone is the God-man. He alone is the righteous one. He alone is the author of life. And it is by his body and his blood that our sin is paid for. And it is by his death on the cross and his resurrection that brings eternal life to us. It is Christ alone. That is what the scriptures say about him. That's what the disciples said about him. That's what Jesus says about himself. That's the doctrine. But why does it matter? Is it just good, sound doctrine that good Christians should know? Does the doctrine of Christ alone have any appreciable effect on your life? Well, you could say, well, good teaching keeps us from bad teaching. C.S. Lewis once said, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy must be answered. And yes, good doctrine must exist because bad doctrine must be answered. Christ alone is a doctrine that is incompatible with others. And the exclusivity of Christ alone does bother people. So they'll say, no, Christ is not the only way. Christ is just a way. And there are many paths to God, and they're all equally valid. But we just looked at a whole bunch of scripture, and that's not what it said, is it? 
And if exclusivity is what bothers you, well, you can't get past that because that's the nature of truth. Truth is exclusive. There's always an infinite number of wrong answers and only one right one. That's how truth works. It is either Christ alone or it is not Christ alone. Now, one side isn't more tolerant than the other because each side is saying that the other is wrong. They're mutually exclusive claims. And so the only question is, which one is true? Good doctrine does keep us from bad doctrine. Good doctrine must exist if for no other reason than bad doctrine must be answered. But that is not the only reason. In fact, in a strange way, Christ alone is an idea that brings unity, even with strong theological disagreement. The Reformation was meant to reform the Catholic Church, and in many ways it did, but clearly and tragically, the biggest result of it was a separation. And I have strong theological differences and doctrinal disagreement with the Catholic Church. I do. I think they're wrong about many things. But I have no doubt that many, many Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we will rejoice with them in heaven, because what is essential for salvation is Christ alone. We can have unity and peace, even with different denominations and doctrinal disagreement, because it is Christ alone. If they're right about Jesus, if they rightly acknowledge who he is and what he did and what it accomplished— then they can be our brothers and sisters because it is Christ alone. Christ alone brings unity. But we can forget that. We we can emphatically say, oh, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, and then turn around and start adding names. It's Christ alone and Luther. It's Christ alone and Calvin. It's Christ alone and secondary theological doctrine that we must believe in order to be saved. No, it's Christ alone. So Christ alone is important to shield us from bad doctrine, but it also clarifies and and produces an order of what is essential for salvation. And by doing so, it leads us to unity. The doctrinal truth of Christ alone protects It unifies, but it also transforms us. This is not just doctrine that we're supposed to know to be good Christians. Christ alone is a truth statement that tangibly, powerfully affects our lives. You know, I chose this passage in Acts because not only does it proclaim Christ alone, but I think it also gives a living demonstration of it in a healing Right, The disciples are clearly linking this physical healing with a spiritual reality, with salvation. And we see that symbolism and connection often in Scripture. And for instance, Jesus says this in John chapter 3, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. With Moses, the Israelites were bitten by snakes in judgment for their sin. But then God has mercy on them and tells Moses to build a bronze snake statue and set it up so that anyone who looks upon it in faith will be healed. And Jesus says, he likewise will be raised up and anyone who looks to him in faith will be forgiven their sin and will be healed. And so in the same way, Peter and John are using this physical healing to point us to eternal life, which comes to us in the same manner, which is by Christ alone. 
They make it very clear it's not them. Verse 12, when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? It's not them. It's the work of Christ alone. And what do we have here? We have a beggar who is lame from birth, who is totally helpless, who is desperate, who is totally dependent on others. Look what it said in verse 2. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Crippled from birth. Spent his whole life this way in a desperate state. And just how desperate? He needs to be carried. His state is so lowly that he needs help just to get to the place where he can beg. Do you see yourself in that? You may not like to. It might be wounding to your pride or your self-esteem. But when we say Christ alone, we mean Christ alone. Not 50-50, not 60-40, it's not some of our righteousness, it's not just a little bit of our works that contribute to our salvation. No, it is Christ alone. It is Christ's work on the cross alone. It is Christ's righteousness alone. Here's what the scriptures say. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We were powerless and ungodly. That is how every single one of us comes to Christ, like this beggar. Powerless, helpless, in such a desperate state that we need help even to get to the place where we can beg. And that may wound your pride. But look where it leads. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. That's what a life transformed by Christ alone looks like. You know, how silly would it be for this beggar to feel slighted because he didn't get to contribute to his own healing? You know, it should have been Christ with some physical therapy, some work of mine that contributes to my healing. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm glad that I get to walk for the first time ever, but it, it kind of hurts my self-esteem that it was all Christ doing. What a silly thought that would be. No, rather than feel slighted, when you actually recognize that it's all Christ, when you see your true condition for what it really was, that you were powerless and ungodly, that you were helpless and desperate, and yet Christ acted on your behalf, that fills you with this sort of inexpressible joy, with gratitude and thankfulness, with walking and leaping and worship and praise of God for what He alone has done. And rather than diminish us, it raises us up. This beggar's life was transformed by Christ alone. He was healed. He was restored. His status is raised. He no longer has to be a beggar. And where once he was outside the temple, now he is brought into the house of the Lord. 
And that's what God does for us. He sees us in our lowly state and reaches out to us. And in the name and the power of Christ, he heals us. He gives us a new life. He raises us up and brings us into his presence for our joy and his glory forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.